Hello and welcome to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Resnick. This episode is brought to you in part by Independent Pharmacy Alliance. IPA is a trade association and buying group representing 3,700 plus independent pharmacies, leveraging buying power to help pharmacies access pharmaceuticals at the best prices. IPA now offers a comprehensive third-party help desk, legislative advocacy, and continuing education free of charge to members. Learn more today at IPA Group. Org. And in this episode of the IPA podcast, we will speak with Thomas D'Angelo, the chairman of the Pharmacist Society of the State of New York, PISNI. Tom, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me, Anthony. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become an advocate for independent pharmacy and PBM reform? So I've been a pharmacist since 1989. I graduated from St. John's University. My goal was actually to go into home infusion pharmacy. And I, I ended up being a retail pharmacist. I own a retail, a traditional retail independent pharmacy. I also own a home infusion pharmacy and I own a compounding pharmacy that does not have any contracts with any PBMs. It is strictly a cash business. And the reason we did that was because of the problems we were having with PBMs. So I've been doing this for a long time. I got involved with PISNI pretty much because of what was going on in the industry with PBMs, with reimbursement. You know, we saw this coming when Caremark was able to get bought by CVS. Yeah. We knew at that point that we had a major problem on our hands. And it took a while for people to realize it. And, and I was one of the few early on that said, these guys are going to eat us up if we keep allowing this to happen. And I didn't get involved with Disney until probably about seven, eight years ago. Even though I had spoke, I know people who were involved. It wasn't until I realized that we were in a lot of trouble that I said, I need to get involved. I need to put my money where my mouth is and really get involved here and help out. So it's interesting what you said. You're a pharmacist by trade. You practice retail independent pharmacy. And you noticed that there was a real problem when Caremark and CVS kind of got together, where the PBM portion, which is Caremark, and CVS, their chain retail portion, got together. What year do you think that was? When, when did that occur? That has to be around 1993, 94. So Caremark used to be with Merck. Mm-hmm. Merck, which is Merck Sharp and Dome, owned Caremark. And they were told by the FTC, you can't be a drug manufacturer and a PBM because there's a conflict of interest. But we're going to let CVS, which is a major chain drugstore, own a PBM. Right. That's not a conflict of interest. It made no sense at the time. We were all up in arms about it. But the FTC and their infinite wisdom allowed it to go through because they said there would be firewalls and, and they, they couldn't communicate with one another and they would be separate entities. Obviously, that's not really true. It's interesting when CVS and Caremark, when they merged and the FTC allowed it in their infinite wisdom, obviously, when you noticed this, you saw there was a conflict of interest. Do you think that a lot of the people in independent pharmacy at the time, did they notice this or is this something that... They didn't catch on right away. There were a group of people, I think, that saw it happening. I remember being in a PISNI meeting, and they were talking about scope of practice issues. They were talking about vaccinating, doing blood pressures, and and being paid to do all this. And I stood up and I said, hey, guys, if we don't stop this mail order PBM thing right now, they're going to eat us for lunch. We're going to be gone because they're going to control everything. And, you know, the, the insidious part of this was as technology was improving as far as transmitting claims and the amount of information that they got, 
you could see what was going to happen. They were going to get our doctor lists. They were going to get our patient lists. They were going to get our drug lists. They knew which manufacturers were selling, which manufacturers weren't. They had all of that information. It was all being downloaded with every claim you put through. I realized that with that information, they could then open their own mail order pharmacies and start steering patients to their own entity. And that's what started happening. And it's very easy at that point to manipulate, we're using letters and phone calls, how a person goes to get their prescription. Sure, absolutely. It's really kind of interesting, you know, when I worked in the legislature and we heard about these particular mergers, a lot of people in the legislature weren't aware of what a pharmacy benefit manager was or the scope of a company like CVS. So when those companies merged and we first started hearing about steering and these types of issues. No one was actually thinking about high drug prices at the time, that this could somehow cause drug prices to increase. But that's actually exactly what happened. While they were taking away business for independent pharmacy owners, steering customers away, at the same time, we've seen over at least the last 20 years, Drug prices have increased exponentially where people in the United States pay the highest drug prices in the world. But at the same time, PBMs constantly tell us, well, we're saving you money. Right. And that obviously is not true. You guys have done a lot of work in New York on FixRx where you guys were getting the message out there that PBMs were one of the main drivers of prescription drug costs. Tell us a little bit more about FixRx and the type of message that you've gotten out there to the public and politicians about how PBMs drive prescription drug costs. Sure. So FixRx was an initiative started by the New York City affiliate of PISNI. We had a meeting. We got a bunch of pharmacies together. We said we need to raise some money and hire our own PR firm to start getting this message out and to really let our elected officials know what's going on so they know we're, we're seriously involved here. So FixRx has been a great help for us. And in addition to our, our lobby team, we have PCMA says we have a powerful lobby team in New York. We have two guys. And the guys who run this are the volunteers, me and other members. There's no powerful lobby group. Right. The message we were getting out with the PBMs, the PBMs like to work in the shadows because it's always good to not let anybody know who you are if you're really robbing them. You don't want people to say, oh, these are the guys that are robbing us. They're the parasite in the middle. They are not supplying the medication. They are not buying the medication. They're not paying for anything. All they are basically is a glorified credit card switch. So the insurance company pays the PBM. The PBM has a contract with us. Neither side knows what that contract is. And PBMs hide that to the lengths of going to court to hide that. Nobody knows that this is going on. And they're just sucking all that profit out of the middle. Great example of how they raise prices. And I'm going I'm to give you this one. A friend of mine his wife needed a medication. There were two medications that could be used. One was $32 for a bottle, my cost. One was $520 to do the same thing. The PBM insisted that we dispense the $520 medication to the point where they wouldn't even give us a prior authorization for a $32 bottle of medication. Then they reimbursed me $500, which is $20 below what it cost me. So what could have cost that patient 32 or that patient's insurance company $32 ended up costing that patient insurance company $520 and I lost money on the deal. Who made all the money there? The PBM. PBM took all that money in between and they didn't do anything. They didn't counsel the patient. 
They didn't dispense the medication. They didn't look up any kind of drug interactions. They provided no professional information whatsoever. And they made all the money. And they're getting money back from the manufacturer. You actually beat me to the punch because I was going to ask you about that quote. When I was preparing for this interview, I looked up some quotes from you. I saw you describe PBMs as parasites and they don't produce anything. All they do is get money from the manufacturer, take money from the pharmacy, rob the patient and enrich themselves. And these are fortune, not fortune 500 companies, fortune 10 companies. We're talking about companies that are raking billions upon billions of dollars no one knows what they're doing with any of this money other than pocketing all this money themselves and increasing costs on patients. And one of the great things that you guys have been doing at PISNI is that you've really educated the legislators about what's going on to the point where just this year in June, you had a huge bill that was passed in the legislature. It went to the governor's desk. And the bill does a lot of great things in terms of drug pricing and keeping pharmacies in business. It would require PBMs to be licensed by the state. I mean, that's a no-brainer. Any company that has this much control over someone's health care has to be regulated. The next thing they would do, they would have to be more transparent about where the money goes that they get from drug companies. Well, if you're getting all of these rebates and discounts from manufacturers, what are you doing with it? Are you reducing costs? What's happening with all these billions upon billions of dollars? And the last thing is, if a pharmacy finds that they're underpaid, similar to what you were describing, what happened to you before, it would just simply give a pharmacy a process to be able to resolve that issue so that they can keep providing all of the valuable services you described. Now, the bill went to Governor Cuomo, former Governor Cuomo. At the time, I saw a quote from one of his spokespeople say he was reviewing the bill. But there's been some history with Governor Cuomo and this bill in the past because Pisney had a lot of success back in 2019. You guys passed a similar measure. At that time, he decided to veto it because the excuse was, well, it violated federal law that we couldn't regulate ERISA or self-insured plans. Now, the Supreme Court ruled that we can regulate these plans. And so you were able to do the impossible and get this bill back to his desk. But what's happened? We know he's gone. But why didn't he take any action yet? Now that the Supreme Court said that excuse is gone, you can regulate these plans. So did you hear anything from Cuomo's office while he was in? Did he say anything? Why did he not take any action when the bill was passed since his issue was already resolved? That's a great question. So part of the problem we had with Governor Cuomo was he's a consummate politician. That's how he managed to stay in office for so long. And and all of those things came into view recently with all of the lawsuits and everything that was going on as to how dirty a player he really was. Not only did he veto the bill on us last year, but he did it the day before Christmas Eve, knowing full well that we would not be able to put up a fight because nobody would be in office. Everybody was off for the holiday season. And Come January 1st, it's over. You can't do anything about it. So he knew that if he vetoed it then, we wouldn't get a chance to do anything about it until the new legislative session, we'd have to start from scratch. It's a pretty sneaky move. He had all year to do it. He waited till that to do it. Fine. We were really disappointed with that. We were very unhappy. We started right off the bat in the new session going after Medicaid, at least the Medicaid parity bill, Medicaid fee for service parity bill. 
We really wanted Medicaid fee-for-service out of PBM control. We had it done. It was a done deal in his budget. Fee-for-service out. Some stuff started going on that was delayed for two years. We were really upset about that. We got on with the senators who were responsible for that, and we let them know flat out, you guys did a tremendous disservice to independent pharmacy. We also had a, a immunology bill to immunize people. There were some other bills in there for lab work to be able to do a CSL lab, an LSL lab rather, and to do some other scope of practice things that we've been trying to get done and that we performed all through the COVID pandemic with executive order. So many of the things we were able to do during the pandemic, we are not really allowed to do in New York State. Mm-hmm. So those bills, four bills that we laid out would be a tremendous help for us. We got them passed in a record time, almost unanimously. So everybody in the Senate, everybody in the Assembly was for it. Very few holdouts. I could count on one hand. Those bills are now ready to go up to the governor's desk. They have not gone to the governor's desk yet because they never got called for. They have to be called for. He became extremely distracted in that period of time because he was fighting for his political career. So nothing, the only things being called to his desk had to do with stuff that was budgetary, that had time limits. There's still some 700 and something bills that have to be sent forward to Governor Hochul's desk. So we are confident that our bills will be put forward and she will have to either sign them or veto them. That is where we are at right now with FixRx and with our lobby team to get that message out, to make sure that she understands why they're important, where they come from. And the governor, she's got to make some political friends herself at this point. I don't know if it would be in her best interest to veto a bill that was unanimously passed. And that says something. You know, when everybody says this bill is important, this bill needs to get passed, this has to get done, I think she'll listen to that. And she has the wherewithal to understand that these things are important and pharmacy needs them. The ERISA issue, Rutledge, that was taken care of for the most part. The PBMs were hiding behind that ERISA screen for a long time, but they're taking everybody to court that's doing it. The PCMA is taking everybody to court. They are going to fight this tooth and nail. And what I like to point out to some people is these three PBMs, as you said, they're Fortune 10, Fortune 15 companies. They have more money. Each of them has more money than many of the states in this union. So if they want to take a state to court, it could be very expensive for the state and they can pay for it. The state can't. And they'll probably have better lawyers too. Right. They can beat you with money. So that's why a lot of the states shy away. They like, could you imagine a state like Delaware fighting PCMA? How could they possibly do that? They'd lose just on finances. I think for a lot of people, it's hard to fathom this because the PBMs, I use an example. I say to people, they're bigger than Disney. If you take a look at the Fortune 500 list, Disney is somewhere down in the 50s. And if you look at the top 10, top 15, right there, you're going to see the PBMs and the insurers and CVS and the companies that own them. For a lot of people, they can't believe it because they've never heard of these companies before. That's probably by design. They don't want to be out there. They don't want to be known because if they were, I think people would be just as angry at them as they are about manufacturers or anyone else. But since they can remain in the shadows, it allows them this ability to practice this way where they can steal money from states like Medicaid programs, where they can steal money from pharmacies, where they can gouge the patient when they're going to pick up their prescriptions. One of the things I wanted to mention, because there might be some people who are listening who aren't familiar with all the terms that we're talking about. Obviously, Medicaid is a program 
that services underserved communities, people who don't have access to health care, provides them with health insurance if they meet a certain income limit. And one of the things that you were talking about was you have a bill in right now that the governor may consider, and it would require that you would be paid for providing a patient with the medication, providing counseling services, making sure that the patient is staying healthy and staying out of the hospital. You would be paid somewhere in the neighborhood. It would require you to be paid $10, $10 and something cents. One of the things that I want to get across to most people just to let them know is that we're talking about for the service that the pharmacist is providing to make sure a patient is safe, making sure that they stay out of the hospital, making sure that there are no drug interactions. We're talking about paying the pharmacist maybe a little over current minimum wage. That's really what we're talking about here. When we're talking about Medicaid managed care, that's where most pharmacists get paid. They're getting a fee that's below the minimum wage. You, you can have a waiter that's making more money on tips while you're dealing with a diabetes patients, COVID-19 patients, you name it. So I want to get across to people that we're only talking about a payment that's barely above minimum wage for providing a life or death service. Absolutely. I'll go even further. So I've had patients present with a prescription, 30 tablets, month supply. You go through their profile, you make sure everything's good, make sure that there's no interactions. You transmit that claim, you get paid 26 cents total. Total reimbursement, 26 cents from the, some of these. I mean, that's ridiculous. That doesn't even pay for the cap that's going on the bottle. It's just insane. But that's what we're dealing with. And a lot of pharmacies, they can't hold on anymore. And what's going to happen is you're going to start seeing the independent pharmacies, in the under, mostly in the underserved communities, go out of business because chains don't want to be in those communities. They're not making as much money as they will in a, in a more affluent community. It's the independents that serve those communities that are not going to be able to hold on. And those people are going to have to go outside of their communities to get their health care. And very often, the pharmacy is the frontline health care provider for that community, above all others, above nursing, doctors, anybody. The first person they go see is their community pharmacist because one, he speaks their language. Two, they trust him. He's been there for a while. He's probably raised their children or he's probably taking care of their parents. So they come in there knowing that they're going to get good information from that person. When those pharmacies go out of business, there's going to be a problem. And you're seeing it now where some of those communities don't want to get vaccinated. And so they come into the pharmacy and the pharmacist basically has to say, it's okay to get vaccinated. The vaccine works. It'll help you. There's really nothing to worry about. And then they get it. But there won't be a pharmacy there to do that for them. Those communities will definitely become the hardest hit and the most undeserved. Absolutely. I mean, from my time working with independent pharmacies, independent pharmacies do serve those underserved communities where the chains do not open pharmacies. They know the families. They know their conditions. They've been dealing with patients one-on-one -on -one for 10, 15, 20 years. And a lot of cases in those underserved communities people don't have access to transportation. So if that pharmacy closes down, that community could become what's termed as a pharmacy desert, where you don't have access to pharmacy services. The closest pharmacy could be five, 10 miles away. And you can't ask senior citizens and people with chronic conditions to walk that longer distance or try to find some sort of transportation to get there. We have to maintain these pharmacies. And that's why the bills that you were describing especially the one that you recently had passed in June, is so vital because one, 
for those underserved communities, we would get more prescription drug transparency so that the state can know where the money is going when the PBM is collecting it, so they can be smarter about what type of policies they pass to reduce prescription drug costs. But two, keeping independent pharmacies in business so they can keep serving those communities because that pharmacy may be the only lifeline in that particular community when it comes to healthcare for numerous amounts of patients. We're talking about an extremely vital healthcare service that the state needs to take seriously. They have to save that service because it's not just about keeping some business employed. This is about keeping an extremely vital part of the community there so they can keep serving those patients. Correct. And I like to point out, you know, sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, you know, maybe it's just that the independent pharmacies can't compete. They just don't buy properly. I always point out this is not the Home Depot versus the hardware store type of thing. Home Depot did it with volume. They buy large quantities. They were able to make contracts with the manufacturers and they're selling a product that people have come to pay for. Patients, by and large, don't want to pay for healthcare if they have insurance. They feel that insurance should cover it. The PBM contract that the pharmacy signs is a take-it-or-leave-it contract. So you have three PBMs controlling 80% of the prescriptions in this country. If you don't sign that contract, you can lose 40% of your business overnight. And it's not that you didn't buy right. It's not that you can't keep your prices down. It's not that your service is no good. It's simply the fact that you have to sign a contract with somebody who is your absolute enemy. They are absolutely your competition, and yet they are the ones that are allowed to pay you. It's as if Chevy and Ford were competing with each other, but Ford was the one paying Chevy for the cars. Right. Are they going to pay Chevy the full value for the car? No, they're not going to pay for the car. So Chevy eventually will go out of business. If Chevy's making a car that costs $250, but Ford is only going to pay him $200, Chevy's going to have to go out of business. And that's really what this is about. Sure. That's it. It's, it's not a competition issue. Independent pharmacies, by and large, can compete with any chain store, with any large entity. They cannot compete with somebody who is robbing them legally. Absolutely. You know, I think the way you said it, it's perfectly right. Independent pharmacies have to take these take it or leave it contracts. But at the same time, you're in effect working and hoping that your competition pays you the right amount, or at least gets you above the acquisition costs. It's really almost an impossible scenario. Who would ever want to go into business where they are working for their competitor and they have to depend on their competitor, hope that their competitor is going to pay them a decent amount to keep them in business? This is what's happening in the pharmacy space. You have three companies, Optum, Express Scripts, and CVS Caremark, where they control 80% of the market. And on top of that, all the pharmacies, every pharmacy in the United States has to be contracted with them. And they get to decide how much those pharmacies get paid. They can shift all of that business over to their own pharmacies, the pharmacies that they own. At the same time, the manufacturers also are beholden to them because the PBM controls the entire customer base. So you have this near monopoly. Have you found that that's been a difficult thing to do is communicate that message to the public because of the complexity of the pharmacy issue and how these companies are just unknown? 
Well, that's absolutely the issue. And that's why the PBMs stay in the shadows, as you mentioned before. They don't want anybody to know what's going on and how they're controlling the prescriptions. The patients that come into our pharmacy, when they see how much these things cost or what their copay is, you know, they get mad at us. We're the bad guy. But very often, we can't even tell them. I mean, up until recently, there were gag clauses in our contracts where we're not allowed to tell them that if you pay cash for this product, it's $6, but your, your copay is $10. You aren't allowed to tell them, pay me $6 cash and I'll give you the prescription and I won't transmit it to your PBM because the PBMs want complete control of everything that's going on. They want to see every prescription filled. They even want to see when you're filling something for cash, what you charge because they want that data. That's the amazing thing, Tom, you know, just for anybody who's listening that might not be familiar with it. So just until recently, pharmacists were not allowed to tell you if the cash price of your drug was cheaper than your insurance price. Literally, like what Tom just said, they were gagged from in their contracts from telling patients about this. And I remember when this issue first came up and I was talking to some legislators about it. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. They said, really? Are you serious? I said, yeah, this is not a fantasy. This is reality. It's in the contract. They are not allowed to tell them if the cash price is cheaper than the insurance price. Right. And I think a lot of people did get outraged about that, but that is really an interesting point. And have you found recently are pharmacists telling their patients more and more about what their options now, now that there's been, a, uh, I guess, a federal law that was passed that's allowing them to do it? I think I think so. You know, I, th- I think pharmacists have, have, you know, now feel a little bit more open about it. You know, I like to describe what we do with the PBMs. I call we call it whack a mole. Mm-hmm. So every time you fix a problem, you know, you hit that mole, it pops up somewhere else. They pop something else. A great example is we had a law passed called the Mac Appeal Law. So the Mac Appeal Law was so that if anything was paid underpaid based on the maximum allowable cost of the drug, we could fight it and hopefully get money back. I don't know anybody that ever won a Mac appeal. No Mm -hmm. pharmacist ever did. And within a year, they changed the term Mac to something completely different. Generic equivalent rate, GER. It's now the generic equivalent rate. It's no longer called Mac. So Mac appeal doesn't apply here. All they do is change the terminology. They're they're very good at making the wording and the terminology to suit their need. That was the amazing thing. And Mac appeal, it just allows the pharmacy to appeal a payment where they were underpaid for filling a prescription. And I think every state that passed the MAC appeal ran into this issue where you had the majority of states passing a MAC appeals law, and then the PBMs come in and they had a bright idea. Well, guess what? The majority of what we're paying you is under this formula called MAC. Well, now we're going to have new formulas, like you right. said, G-E-R, B-E-R, D-F-E-R. Instead of Mac, it can be Whopper, you know, you name it. And now we're paying you with this and it's not covered under your Mac law anymore. So they're constantly changing the rules of the game all the time. And that's part of the difficulty too, is that a well-meaning law is passed like a Mac appeal, and then they will come in and they will change the terms of the deal. And this isn't covered under your law. Exactly. That's the whack-a-mole formula. That's exactly what it is, right? The DIR fees. So they were originally supposed to be so that we could track patients' utilization, make sure that they're taking their medication properly, keeping them out of the hospital. It really was a well-intended law. You know, it made perfect sense. The problem is once the PBMs got a hold of it, it became 
Frankenstein. So there were four groups of drugs that we were watching for DIR. We were watching diabetes drugs, statins, blood pressure was one of them. And everybody is staying within their, their cholesterol is good, their blood pressure is good, their diabetes is under control. That's great. And if that's the case, then Medicare would reimburse or give money back to improve this, this whole system. Fantastic idea. All of a sudden, all these drugs are involved in the DIR fees. Specialty drugs are included in DIR fees. One of the specialty drugs was Viagra. How does that have anything to do with Medicare or utilization or, I mean, come on. So Viagra was classified as a specialty drug? It's in their specialty, yeah, wow. it's in their specialty list. The term specialty makes me bananas, by the way, because there's no such thing as a specialty drug. Exactly. There's no such thing really as a specialty drug. That's just a term that the PBM industry created to not allow pharmacies to dispense certain drugs. And then they shift those drugs to their own pharmacies, the pharmacies that they own. And there are plenty of pharmacies out there who specialize in all sorts of different types of medications. But it all really depends on your insurance company. Your insurance company can play doctor and decide, well, this pharmacy can't dispense this drug because we're going to classify it as a specialty. So you have to come here and purchase it from here. And it's reducing patient choice. It's increasing the amount of money that patients are paying uh, when they get those drugs. And a lot of cases, like you said, they have to go mail order. And we've heard a lot of horror stories where patients receive their drugs, cancer patients, chemia patients via mail order, and those drugs weren't packaged properly and patients got sick. So there are a ton of horror stories and they can't go to the pharmacy down the block to get resolved. They have to go and speak to somebody on a 1-800 number, hoping that they can get a representative who doesn't know anything about pharmacy or their condition, uh, get the problem resolved. That's correct. Tom, thanks a lot for coming on with me. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. And I, I hope I explained everything as clearly as uh, I could. Absolutely. Absolutely. For more information and to learn more about the Pharmacist Society of the State of New York, go to PSSNY.org. Thanks for listening to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. This podcast was made possible by the Independent Pharmacy Alliance and the president and CEO, John G. Impolo. It was produced and edited by Zach Stone with music by Marcus Way. For previous and future episodes, check out ipagroup.org. Thank you very much. Bye for now.